0: back to uh, Joshua tonight. Uh, got our work cut out. We're going to go through two chapters. Um, I'm going to read them as well. Um, we'll do chapter seven first. That will constitute like the first half of tonight and then we'll do chapter 8. So let's dive in. Chapter 7. Now, this is just after they've had the victory at Jericho. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regards to the devoted things. That's the spoils from Jericho. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it. Do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads and Joshua said Sovereign Lord why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us if only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan O Lord what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth what will we do for your own great name the Lord said to Joshua stand up what are you doing down on your face Israel has sinned they have violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep they have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen they have lied they have put them with their own possessions that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their foes. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you any more unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord the God of Israel says, that which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your foes until you remove it. In the morning present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And The family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Early the next morning Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward and he took the Zerahites. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man and Achan son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken then Joshua said to Achan my son give glory to the Lord the God of Israel and give him the praise tell me what you have done do not hide it from me Achan replied it is true I have sinned against the Lord the God of Israel this is what I have done when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua together with all of Israel took Achan son of Zerah the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? That's why they called it Achor. The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up, a large pile of rocks which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since." Now what we've got here is that having destroyed Jericho, which was the first of the battles that they had in taking the promised land, and uh, Jericho was a biggie and um you know sort of like they saw God work a great miracle there and having seen victory over Israel uh, sorry over Jericho the next target on their list was the city of AI which was um some 15 miles away now AI actually means a ruin or a heap that's that's meaning of its you know sort of its its name and compared to Jericho it was a small place it it was to that extent easy pickings and what's happening is that um, they go against AI and they get defeated they get marmalized Now, something has happened during the taking of Jericho that accounts for this sudden, unexpected defeat. And what's happened is that Achan, one of the guys in the Israelite army, he has taken some of the spoils from Jericho and he's kept them for himself. Now, God had been quite clear to the people that everything in Jericho was devoted to the Lord. It was the first fruits. It was all to be given to him. Everything from the other battles that were to follow was going to be for Israel, but the takings of Jericho were for the Lord. And Achan now has taken some of those things that uh, belong to the Lord. Now you'll remember last time we we, we saw that... um we've all got a Nebuchadnezzar inside of us. Uh, We've we've all got that sinful nature, the, look what I have done by my mighty power to the glory of my majesty. We we saw that last time. And that all the time God has to be dealing with that in us and Nebuchadnezzar was, of course, the ruler of Babylon. And it's interesting that in uh, verse 21, I can tells Joshua once he's been like confronted and convicted of this sin, he tells him that he had been tempted by a beautiful Babylonian robe. And all the time our sinful natures are drawn to the world. And what we're seeing here is that because Achan was drawn to the world so much that he's sinned and is hiding it, here we've got unconfessed sin we've got undealt with sin. Once that is in the camp then it inevitably means defeat. Also, let's just, let me just read verse 3. This is after Joshua sent the spies out to spy out the land. When they returned to Joshua they said not all the people will have to go up against Ai. They say it's a heap, it's a ruin. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. Now, can you see the great danger? They'd learnt the lesson that at Jericho, walking around those walls, crumbs, how are we going to take this? They were relying on the Lord. It was a biggie. Now, can you see that laxness is creeping in? They go and spy out, spy out AI, and they come back. Oh, it's a heap no it's just send a few men out no mention of the Lord here they're they're seeing it through human eyes can you see there's sin in the camp and faith is turning to unbelief reliance on the Lord is turning into reliance in self look what I have built by my mighty power to the glory of my majesty as soon as unconfessed sin is in the camp then worldliness the Nebuchadnezzar inside starts to come out you know and the old babylonian robes the world start i mean by the world i mean the wrong things in the world suddenly start to look so very attractive to us and uh, so what's happening here is that joshua he he responds he does what the spies say they come back and say send up so many men joshua as the leader of god's people allows himself to be directed not by god as he was at jericho but by the people can you see rot is setting in and uh, it's it's spreading and so therefore off they go to AI and they're defeated. Um, they run 36 of them are killed and although AI is very small they get beaten. They've seen victory at Jericho which was the Big E <clears throat> now they've got a little, and they're beaten and of course but the thing is that the reason that they saw victory at Jericho, which was the biggie, was because God had given them the victory at Jericho. But once God's blessing is withdrawn from them, which it now is, even little AI beats the pants off them. Now, can you see that point? They got the victory at the biggie because God gave it to them but once his blessing and power is withdrawn from them even a little heap of ruins proves too much for them and we must remind ourselves of the reasons why in spiritual warfare it must be the Lord and not us at all remember in Ephesians be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might Now that unconfessed sin is in the camp, God's power has been withdrawn from them and uh, now they're weak. They haven't got the Lord's strength and even little old AI beats them. And once we move away from the Lord, once there's undealt with sin in our lives, once God has withdrawn his blessing from us in that sense, then regardless of what victories great victories we might have seen the Lord give us in the past the smallest thing that Satan does will us, because our only hope of victory against Satan is the victory of the Lord without the Lord unconfessed sin in our lives we're flawed all right and that now is what's happened uh, here with Israel now When you get like disaster and seeming defeat it doesn't always mean that it's God pointing out sin. We're all well aware of the story of Job in the Old Testament. I mean you could say that disaster and seeming defeat came upon him. That wasn't because of undealt with sin, that was precisely because he was so faithful to the Lord. So, we mustn't think that disaster and seeming defeat is always God pointing out sin. It's not necessarily. But here it was. The defeat of AI was God's way of drawing their attention to the sin that hadn't been dealt with. And the key to it is that eventually God made it absolutely clear. It became abundantly clear that it was sin and what that sin was. So, I mean, obviously, we mustn't hold moratoriums on every seeming defeat or every seeming disaster in our lives. I mean, that would just make you insular and self-obsessed. That's a big mistake. But nevertheless, we must examine ourselves, as Paul tells us in Corinthians in the context of the love feast, and all the time be open, just all the time, one ear open, to be ready to hear... Any time should the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit, be convicting us um, of of sin. So we mustn't think that seeming disaster and defeat is always God pointing out sin, but in this instant it most definitely was. Now, um, in, in in verse um, six to ten, we have Joshua like. He tears his clothes and he falls face down on the ark, you know, on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and he stays there all day. And he's he's crying out to the Lord, and he's saying, "Oh, this defeat! You know, what are the people going to think? And you know, they're going to lose respect for your name, Lord. And oh, why did you bring us across? And uh, blah 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 blah." He's he's praying his his heart out, and uh, it's interesting what God says to him. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up, what are you doing down on your face? Now, when the problem is unconfessed sin, there is only one answer to it. That is confession. Um, even prayer is no substitute for confession if there's undealt with sin in our lives. Fundamentally, what God is saying, what are you praying for, Joshua? This is not the time to be praying this is not the time for intercession this is not the time to make your request made known to God with prayer and thanksgiving this is the time to deal with the sin that has caused this defeat Um, so when the problem is undealt with sin the answer is to deal with that sin Um, let me say as well that when the problem is undealt with sin the answer to it is dealing with that particular sin that the Lord is convicting you of, not other things that he isn't convicting. We've all done that, haven't we? You know, the Lord's convicting us of something and we don't like it so we suddenly get very repentant about everything else. Um, the, the the name of the game in this instance is 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 real honesty. Right? And God is saying to Joshua, look, this isn't the time for prayer. Sin has come in and it's got to be dealt with. And uh, And it's it's interesting what the Lord, you know, sort of then says to him because the Lord says to Joshua, Israel has sinned, they have violated my covenant. Now, that's fascinating because although Achan had committed this sin as an individual, he individually had committed the sin. God at this moment looks down. And sees it as a corporate sin. It's worth noting again that they got lack- lackadaisical. Joshua is not depending on the Lord quite the same as he was here. You know, the people were getting cocky. Oh, hell, it's not, you know. And, and, and there's something about sin that spreads. And, and, and our sin individually affects others. Achan sinned, but Israel was defeated. It wasn't that Achan was, say, one of the people who went into AI and was one of the people who got killed. Achan, as an individual, sinned, but Israel corporately was defeated. And, of course, this reminds us of of the corporate aspect of the Christian life. You'll remember, we saw that when they actually came across the Jordan as a nation, that there was this business with the 12 stones, taking the 12 stones from the middle of the river and making an altar of them, you know, sort of like on the other side, um, on the promised land side of the Jordan. This emphasizing the 12 tribes, emphasizing the corporateness um, that they had as the people of God, not just individual persons of God but emphasising that they were the people, corporate, of God. If we just just go to um, see some uh, verses, just go to Romans first. Because remember, we're, we're saved individually, but we're part of fellowship. We're part of the, the wider church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 12. and first of all read verse 5 he says so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others now that's the principle where individually we belong to Jesus but we're members one of another although Without ceasing to be ourselves individually, we are part of something bigger. You know, like an arm is part of my body. But let's now, having read that, read the context of Paul saying that. And if you go uh, back to verse 1, and he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world going after the Babylonian robes as it were but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good and pleasing perfect will for by the grace given me I say to every one of you do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not have the same function so in Christ and here's the verse we read we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others we have different gifts according to the grace given to us and can you see the context there He's saying about the fact that individually you are members of each other and the context is God doing that sanctifying work in our lives. The preceding verses are all about not being conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. The context is God dealing with our sinfulness. It's sanctification, deliverance from the power of sin. And in, in, in all matters, sanctification-wise, it has to be taken into account we're part of the body. And therefore there's a sense in which even as God is working in me, he's not working in me, divorced from other people. Think of it like this. Very often, all right, if God dealing with my sin means that I'm making everyone else suffer, then sometimes we can, can't we? World crumbs. That's an example of how the sin of the individual spreads out and contaminates the whole body, as it did... Um, in the example of Achan. Um, on a similar vein, goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And find verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. And he says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. So again, you've got the corporate, you're the body of Christ, but you've got the individual, and each one of you is a part of it. You've got the same thing. We're individuals, but nevertheless, we're part of a larger body. Now, look at verse 26. He says, and he's talking here about the different parts of the body. He says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Now, I mean, there's a sense in which if someone is sorrowful, let their brothers and sisters, you know, sort of gather around and pray for them and share their pain. But I think it can mean more than that as well. I mean, you know, if I'm having a hard time, if I'm not careful, I can end up giving other people a hard time because I'm having a hard time. And you end up suffering because I'm suffering, purely because the results of my sin are passing on to other people. Now that was what was happening in regards to Achan's sin. It was spreading. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 12, and verse 15 and the writer says see to it that no one misses the grace of God now Achan had missed the grace of God he got out of fellowship that's what missing the grace of God means you get out of fellowship undealt with sin he says see to it he said, don't let it happen see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defeat many you see the warning there the sin of the individual can defile the whole church and indeed this is one of the reasons isn't it for discipline in the church this is one of the reasons why there can be a time when people who will not deal with their sin who will not put it right there is a time to exclude them from the church completely Just see that go go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and um, and in verse, verse 6 he says and the context here is he's dealing with putting people out of fellowship he says your boasting is not good Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? A little bit of yeast in a whole load of dough, and that tiny bit of yeast affects the whole batch of dough. And that's what sin, that's what the sin of the individual can do to the corporate. And then he goes on, saying, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world, um, but he says, I'm writing you, you must not associate yourself with anyone who calls himself a brother, and then he lists various sins, you know, if so be, they will not repent of those sins. And so you can see there the principle. The sin of the individual can contaminate and defile the many. Hence, I can sinned but God but Israel was beaten as a nation and uh, obviously one can't take this too far Uh, you know it would be easy to take it so far as to remove individual responsibility completely that would be crazy and there's a real sense in which if I really stay close to the Lord then no matter what you do, what your sin is, that shouldn't affect me. You know, each one of us is responsible for staying right with the Lord. But nevertheless, this aspect is there, these warnings are there. And we've got to understand that precisely because we're part of a body, we can't uh, any longer kind of feel that we've got the right to be sinning in isolation, as if somehow that doesn't have a wider effect. It does have a wider effect. And uh, it certainly has a wider effect in regards to spiritual warfare. So there we're seeing that although Achan sinned individually, it affected, as it were, the whole body. And of course, this should be even further incentive for us um, in our battle against sin so that we don't experience these defeats. And uh, in, in in verse 12, 12 and, and 13, and sort of now we're back in a in Joshua chapter 7 um, you've got the real kind of like seriousness of sin because God says to them that, that, that they had been made liable to destruction. And of course when undealt with sin is there it is tremendously serious and it will result in defeat for this simple reason sin always puts us on the enemy's side now that in spiritual warfare if we are as it were on the Lord's side and in spiritual warfare against Satan if there's sin that we're not putting right I mean yeah as soon as we sin that puts us in something no, in Satan's camp but confession immediately deals with it completely When you've got unconfessed sin, you're you're in Satan's camp for a period of time. you see what I mean? So how can you have victory over Satan when you're at his side in regards to certain matters? It's one or the other. It's the Lord or it's Satan. And, uh, you know, I I can't battle against Satan and expect to see victory if I'm doing his will in regards to certain things. It, it It just doesn't work like that. And this is why the most common aspect of spiritual warfare, I mean often when Christians talk about spiritual warfare it gets all very immediately dramatic and coming against this, that and the other. And, and, and I mean all, all, all that is a part of it but the most common aspect of spiritual warfare is temptation to sin. Our, the, the most part of our spiritual warfare is resisting temptation to sin satan is the tempter and therefore that is where most of our spiritual warfare is done not all of it but crumbs that is the foundation of spiritual warfare satan simply trying to get us out of fellowship with god by luring us into sin and then once he's lured us into it uh, kind of doing everything he can to kind of persuade us not to then put it right so sin was serious, and here what Achan did, it made Israel liable to destruction, as God said. So, what we then have happen, and uh, we're not given the actual mechanics of how it works, but basically, um, you know, sort of like all the tribes are presented, and the guilty tribe is picked out. Once the guilty tribe is picked out, all the clans in that tribe gone through and the guilty clan is picked out once the guilty clan is picked out then the immediate nuclear families are picked out until it got all the way down and bang there was Achan and the spotlight was very definitely on him and this is a two-edged sword it's a great blessing because when sin is exposed alright it can be dealt with it's a great blessing but it's also a great warning because it will be exposed do you see what I mean? So the longer we try to bury a sin, the worse it's going to be when that exposure actually comes. And remember, Jesus himself said, uh, Mark 4.22, he says, there is nothing hid except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. God is light, and and and, and light exposes darkness. And one way or the other, we... um. We all know this is true, that that God does bring things to a head. He does bring things out into the open, doesn't he? And, uh, I mean, we need him to do this for us. We're, We're dependent on the Lord to, as it were, expose our sin because so often we're blind to it. But let's remind ourselves that there are two ways for it to happen. There's kind of, you know, the Lord's tap on the shoulder uh, a sort of like, oh, excuse me, and that can all be done in private. That could be done as it were in the closet. But if we ignore that, then God is quite capable of therefore moving us into the dining room and doing it in public. So therefore, my, my old saying, you know, sort of let God deal with you in the closet or he'll do it in the dining room. I know I'd rather be dealt with. But I can be assured that if the law's dealing with me in something privately, if I'm turning a blind eye to it, or a deaf ear to it, well, the Lord well knows how to bring other people in on it. And, um, and it's kind of, um, it's always better to have it done in the closet. It's, it's much easier, you know, than for it to be done in public. But nevertheless, if we're stubborn, we can be assured God will do it in public. And, uh, but when the Lord does kind of like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, expose sin in our lives, let's let's remember that it's not it's not his finger pointing in condemnation it's his hand outstretched to forgive the lord isn't pointing that sin out because he wants to do us or anything he's pointing it out because he wants to rescue us from it and so therefore it certainly pays for us to be pliable as it were in his hands um in regards to it but nevertheless we can Rest assured that if we don't let God do it in private that he will move into the public arena with us and well, it's good that he does, but, but 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 it's obviously better if we actually prevent it getting to that. and we can. We can. We can humble ourselves under the almighty hand of God, or we can exalt ourselves, in which case God will humble us. And uh, Achan made the stupid mistake. He did everything he could to hide it. I mean, this this wasn't you know, I, I mean, he, he was found out, as it were. You see, this, this was not voluntary repentance. He was found out. And, uh, you know, how, how sad when, when it goes that far in our own lives. But look at what, um, once he is found out, look what Joshua says to him. He says, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now that's fascinating because what Joshua is saying here he's saying, Achan, if you repent of this sin then you're going to be giving glory to the Lord and rendering him praise. Now that's that's, that's in some ways a marvellous thought, isn't it? That even when we've sinned, if we put sin right whenever we confess our sins We are actually glorifying God and giving him praise. Just go to um, Luke chapter 15. Just read uh, something from from Jesus. I'm going to read from verse 3. Luke 15. Right, okay, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully till she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, "Rejoice with me! I've lost my. Co- I've found my lost coin." In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Now, if we ask ourselves, how can we bless God? Well, by praising Him and worshipping Him. So often we think, but my praise and worship, does that really mean anything to God? Well, here we can be assured that when we confess our sins, it means something to God. He rejoices in it. It's a greatest blessing. It glorifies Him. And what's interesting He he talks about rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. So if you confess a sin, there's rejoicing. And then he goes on to say, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Well, who's in the presence of the angels of God? God is. And that it actually makes the Lord happy when we repent of our sins. I mean, this is Romans 8.28 gone bananas, isn't it? I mean the most dreadful thing we can do is sin but when we have sinned if we repent it makes God happy we're never beyond being able to bless the Lord to make him happy and uh, you know so therefore if we say well look how can we how can I please God how can I bring joy to God's heart praise worship yes blah 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 but what is one aspect of that well here we can see confess my sins If I confess my sins, I make God happy. That's an incredible thought. So can you see, don't think of God as just being unhappy when you sin. Remember, he's so very happy with you when you repent. That's the right perspective in regards to sin. Now then, look what Achan says. He says, it's true, I've sinned against the Lord, this is what I've done. And then he lists it out, the Babylonian robe, 200 shekels of silver and 50 shekels of gold. He, he's very specific. And so must we be when it comes to confession. If we want to make the Lord happy, um, then our confession must be the sort of confession that God likes. And I guess the point is that you know, if the punishment must fit the crime, then the confession must fit the sin, doesn't it? So, it's no use confessing of B, you know, confessing B, when the sin was actually A. Specific, calling it what it was, called a spade a spade when it comes to sin. You don't need to dress it up. And remember that when it comes to forgiving someone, and God forgives us, when you forgive someone, forgiveness is not somehow excusing the wrong, Forgiveness doesn't excuse the wrong. If the wrong is excusable, it's not a wrong. It doesn't need forgiving. To forgive a wrong is to look at it in all its horror and then forgive it because you love the person. So we must never try and whitewash our sins. Anything like that, just confess our sins and be specific about it. And then the upshot of it is that this having been done, um, Achan, and his whole family, and all his possessions, even his animals, are stunned by the people and burned. And we see that the sin here is dealt with through judgment and death. Now, we ask the question, Achan sinned so why did his family die? Why did they have to die? Well remember, what we're seeing here is if the New Testament is the script The Old Testament is the film, alright. We're seeing it acted out. Now, the reason that Achan's family died with him was that Achan was the head of that family. He was their head. And as their head, he was their representative before God. He was their priest. Now, in the same way, Jesus is our head. He's the head of the church. Jesus is our great high priest. Now why did Achan die? Because of sin. So his whole family died with him. Why did Jesus die? Because of sin. So his whole family, that's us, we died with him on the cross. We share Jesus' death to sin. That's why in Romans, Paul argues in chapter 6, look, we're dead to sin. Don't keep living in sin, we're dead to sin. In the same way that Achan died because of sin and his whole family died with him, Jesus died because of sin and we, his family, we all died with him. Can you see? Sin brought death, okay. We died with Jesus on the cross in exactly the same way that Achan's family died with him because of his sin. And therefore, that's why sin is dealt with. Once Achan and his family died, this matter was settled before God. And that's why when you and I confess our sins, The matter is settled before God. It's gone. It's as if it never happened. And so that brings us to chapter 8. So let us read chapter 8. I've lost my place. Right. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you, go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho, and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out that night with these orders. Listen carefully, you're to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city, and when the men come out against us as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say they're running away just like they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it you have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off and they went to the place of ambush, laying wait between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning Joshua mustered his men and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. They had the soldiers take up their positions, all those in the camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night Josh went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he didn't know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled towards the desert. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel. He did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out towards Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin towards Ai. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back, saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky but they had no chance to escape in any direction for the Israelites who had been fleeing towards the desert had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from the city they turned round and attacked the men of Ai. The men of the ambush also came up out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. We'll finish off the last few verses at the end. Right, so then, what have we got? The sin that has come in, that caused the defeat at AI, has been confessed and dealt with. Alright? So once sin has been confessed and dealt with, what then? Okay? Well, the first thing, okay, God speaks to Joshua. He says, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. So the first thing we've got to realise is that when we've put sin right, when we've confessed sin, all right, there is never any need for fear or discouragement because it's forgiven. 1 John 1 verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the point is that when we end up flat on our face because of sin we confess that sin and then we pick ourselves up and we carry on as if it had never happened. All right. Remember, we're justified. We're justified by faith. What is it to be justified? It's justified, never sinned. We've been declared righteous before God. We have the righteousness of Jesus. That is why there is no condemnation for those which are in Christ Jesus. Sin forgiven is sin forgotten. And when we put our sins right with God, and obviously that might mean putting it right with other people as well, but when we confess our sins, they are dealt with. It, into the deepest sea in the Old Testament it says. "You know, God has taken our sins and thrown them into the deepest sea. Uh, there's a sign over it says no fishing because no one is allowed to go fishing there it's gone their sins I will remember no more that's what God said in the Old Testament and so therefore because sin forgiven is sin forgotten that means that the victory that they'd lost they are now going to get back alright and then in, in, in verse three onwards you get the tactics the directions that God gives them for how to go about now taking this city of Ai and it's absolutely fascinating that the tactics that God has them use were based on the fact that they were beaten when they attacked Ai earlier and so the tactics that God gave them Remember, the first time they attacked AI, they ended up fleeing. They were beaten by AI because there was sin in the camp. Now that that sin has been dealt with, God says, right, okay, now here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in there, a few men, but you're going to have the main army around the back of the city. And what you're going to do when you go in, all right, when, when, when the, the men of AI come out, sort of like put up a bit of a fight and then run, make them think that you're fleeing again. Lull them into a full sense of security, then once all the men of AI are chasing you, thinking that you know you've, you've fled again, then the army that's behind AI can come in deal, you know deal with AI, and then the, the Israelites who look like they were fleeing can turn round and then in a pincer movement, bang, get the rest of the army. so they were the tactics that God said, use in this example. so the point is. Israel has put right the sin that cost it this defeat at Ai. Now okay, God is going to give them the victory that they lost but he does so by making their previous defeat the means of this victory. Now that is Romans eight twenty-eight. in everything God works together for good to them that love him and who are called according to his purposes. So the point is, because of their sin, they ended up in defeat. Now God's going to give them the victory because they've confessed that sin. But he's going to give them the victory by using that sin, that defeat that they would known because of sin. So the point is, their previous defeat now becomes the means of their victory. God's going to use their sin to their blessing now. Now sin is never ever good. Sin is always to be avoided, it's always evil. But Romans 8.28 means that when we repent, even our sin is going to become a means of blessing. And. You're, I mean, two examples I can give you. You'll remember in the time of um, uh, in 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 the time of uh, Joshua, after they defeated Jericho, Joshua said, "Put a curse on it. Jericho is never to be rebuilt." Remember, years later, it was during the time of Elijah, and then there came a time when Elisha, who was Elijah's successor, went to Jericho and Jericho, the water, had become poisoned. And so what Elisha did is he threw a twig in the water system, or no, it was salt wasn't it? or something like that, salt I think it was, and he healed the waters. Now what you've got, uh, Jericho should never have been rebuilt. But it was, the guy who rebuilt it had his sons killed by the Lord, that was the judgment. And thereafter, it shouldn't have been rebuilt, but it was rebuilt, so God blessed it anyway. You see, that's Romans 8.28. The sin shouldn't have happened, but given that it has, God's going to bless it. Or take the example of King David. King David should never, ever have ended up married to Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her and had her husband murdered. You can't get more despicable than that. David had other wives. Yet Solomon who was his heir to which wife was he born? Bathsheba. David should never have married Bathsheba but given that he did God dealt with the sin the firstborn child died. Given that the sin was dealt with God bless that marriage anyway. Now this is Romans 8 28. So here Israel should never have sinned and been defeated at Ai but given that they were God's now going to use it as the means of victory for them that's grace that's Romans 8:28 in everything God works together for good to them that love him who are called according to his purpose think of the ultimate example of this think of Adam and Eve falling into sin now although Adam and Eve before they sinned although they were perfect and they were immortal they would never have died they weren't glorified as a result of the plan of salvation as a result of Jesus dying because of sin we're going to be glorified we're actually going to end up more blessed than Adam and Eve would have remained if they'd never sinned so think of it from Adam and Eve's point of view Adam and Eve would have been perfect and remained immortal but they sinned and that was dreadful but given that they've sinned and given that we know that Adam and Eve repented and became believers Adam and Eve are going to end up glorified Adam and Eve are going to end up even more blessed because of their sin than they would have been if they hadn't sinned that is Romans 8.28 that is grace and that is what um, Israel is experiencing here and it's it's interesting that now in regards to ai joshua is getting directions from the lord again first time round he got directions from his men his spies now he's getting directions from the lord all right also um he's he's kind of um he's sending in all the men all the army the the cockiness has gone, the self-confidence has gone. Can you see how the rot that set in after Jericho, now all the rot is being got out and and God's restoring everyone and everything to how um, it should have been. And so everything now is going back to how it was before Israel got out of fellowship. We've all got to remember this, repentance, conviction of sin is negative in the short term, but in the long term it's positive because it is always for our blessing. So whenever God is dealing with our sin, he's never doing it to be vengeful, vindictive. He's never doing it because he thought, oh, you know, they've done wrong, I've got a good excuse to give them a beating now. That is never, ever, ever what motivates the Lord in regards to us. What motivates him is because he knows that sin damages us. I mean, My sin damages other people, but, but even more important, as far as the law is concerned, my sin damages me. And because He loves me, He doesn't want me to be damaged. He wants me to be whole, holy, not damaged. So therefore, He has to deal with sin in order to set us free from all the terrible things um, that it does to us. And so we can put this another way, we can see that what Satan accomplished against Israel, what Satan had done, now the tables get turned. It looked like Satan had got a victory over Israel, but now that seeming victory is going to be turned against him and it's going to become the means of his defeat. And you'll remember um, a couple of talks back, we saw the thing about Elisha. Do you remember when the Syrian army came to to get him and you know sort of what you know like they surrounded the the town where he was but elisha he saw the army of the lord surrounding the um the human army that was there and we were seeing that it was sort of you know like that that, that satan sorry god uses us as bait for satan as it's a bit like tom and jerry and butch the dog isn't it That it looks like jerry's going to get marmalized by jerry uh, sorry by tom so jerry that's us the mouse And and then Tom's about to get him. Well, there's Tom, the devil. Looks like he's going to get us. But then suddenly Butch the dog appears on the scene and sorts Tom out. And Butch the dog is our Heavenly Father. And so it's sort of like being, you know, luring Satan into the trap. It looked like Satan had trapped Israel, but the truth of the matter was God was using Israel to trap Satan. And... um, and that, 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 that whereas Israel got cocky the first time round and got defeated, this time Ai got cocky. They fell right into it. When the Israelites made out that they were running again, the men from Ai said, Oh, look, look, they're running again and, and sorted after them. And that was their downfall. And Satan always overplays his hand. He always plays straight into God's hand. And uh, then there's this bit as well, isn't there, about the javelin. That while all this is going on, um, God, God tells Moses to hold up the you know, sort of javelin. And he does that all day until the battle's over. You remember that Moses, he had to hold up the wooden rod at the Red Sea, didn't he? He held it up and the waters parted. You remember that when um, Amalek uh, attacked Israel in the wilderness, again, Moses, he held the rod up. And it's a, a picture of, of faith. Um, you know, that sort of like holding up our faith, as it were, looking to the Lord. We've got to, to actively use our faith. We've got to be actively praying, actively believing, like holding up that javelin of faith. And uh, we, we don't lose faith just because we've sinned. I mean, here, Israel are back in fellowship again. The sin has been dealt with, and here is Joshua back on top. He's believing. You know, he's not discouraged, he's not fearful, everything has gone back as if they had never sinned. And that's how we've got to learn to be. When we've sinned, we put it right, we've got to get back into the fight as if that defeat had never happened. And um, otherwise, if you give in to condemnation and despair... Satan will grab a last-minute victory. It'll all the time just be wearing you down so that you're not able to hold up, as it were, that javelin of, of faith. And it's fascinating to see now that God specifically says to them, all the booty, all the spoils, they're yours. They're yours. You can have them. Now, is it, isn't that ironic? I can hoarded a little bit at Jericho because it belonged to God and got the whole nation out of fellowship. Now, God says, the whole lot is yours. Just help yourself. I give it all to you. Now, if only Achan had waited a few more days, you see, there he was, um in Jericho and he sees a Babylon, you know, Babylonian robe and some silver and gold, and you think, oh, I love that. If he'd have waited a couple more weeks or however long the gap was, it wasn't long, he could have had ten times that. And it would have been legitimate because it would have been in God's time. But he moved out of God's time. He was impatient. He jumped the gun. He ran ahead of the Lord. Greed, lust. And it's interesting, this is a perfect example that there can be something that of itself is quite legitimate. Today, God says you can have it. But yesterday, God says, don't you dare have it. You see? How something legitimate can be a sin if you go for it before it's legitimate because it's God's timing, isn't it? there's nothing wrong with food but not if God has said you must be fasting on this occasion you see? if only Achan had waited and wouldn't it have been further ironic as well, if it had been the case I'm guessing, but it might have been because this is with some people But maybe Achan was thinking, you know God's a bit rotten you know he doesn't want us to have anything good he doesn't want us to have any fun if I don't grab a bit of something for myself now if I don't grab it God won't give it to me and I wonder if he acted out of a wrong picture of God and often we do that don't we we have a wrong picture of God which is blasphemous incidentally sometimes the God we believe in is more like what the Bible says the devil's like But you see how ironic if Satan could, say, get an Achan, thinking that God was rotten and wouldn't give him anything, persuaded him, well, get it yourself, because if you don't, God ain't going to give it to you, and then got the whole nation out of fellowship in the process. What a coup for Satan. When all Achan needed to have done was waited a few more days and he'd have had it to his heart's delight. And it's so easy, isn't it? Isn't it interesting... When Jesus was at the end of his 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness of fasting, the Bible specifically tells us, if you look at the text carefully, that Satan came to him right at the end of the temptation. You know, right at the end of that period. And for Jesus, all that temptation he was facing from the devil was right at the end of his fasting. He only had another day to go. And that last day, the angels ministered to him. See how amazing it would have been if Jesus had jumped. Do you know, just too soon. And who knows, the darkest hour is often just before the dawn. And sometimes we can think that it seems so bad. And so we try and get out of it ourselves. When so often God's answer to it is just round the corner. But because we act on it, because we take it into our own hands, because we start doing our thing like can and get into sin over it, we actually do ourselves out of the blessing that God has for us. If only can had just hung in there a little bit longer. And so often that's the same for us, isn't it? Just hang in there. What is it that you're about to take into your own hands because you just think, well, God is not going to do it? Just hang in there. Don't fall for that one like Achan did. Hang in there. Trust the Lord. He knows what's best. Then let's just read the last few verses just so we've finished this this chapter. This is from verse 30. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the Book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. The point about the uncut stones with no iron tool on it is that God doesn't need our help. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? He doesn't need a nicely sculpted and embroidered kind of you know, he can he's well able to sort out himself on it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrifice fellowship offerings there in the presence of the Israelites Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses which he had written all Israel aliens and citizens alike with their elders this by the way is aliens are uh, people from who weren't Jews who were living amongst the Jews this isn't uh, this isn't dark skies or x-files or anything like that um, uh, all Israel, aliens and citizens alike with their elders officials and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them stood in front of Mount Ebal as Moses the servant of the Lord had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards Joshua read all the words of the law the blessings and the curses just as it is written in the book of the law there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them and what's happening here is that back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and chapters 27 to 28 when Moses gave his final teaching sessions before he went off in the wilderness to die and before he handed over the Joshua to take them over the Jordan he he told them that um, that what they were to do when they got into the Promised Land was that um, half the tribes or the leaders of the tribes would go up Mount Gerizim and they would read from Mount Gerizim all the blessings in the old covenant so if people are faithful to God if you stay right with God these are the blessings that you get and the other half of the people or the leaders of the tribes will go out Mount Ebal and they would read out all the curses in the law you know if you forsake me and of course the ultimate curse was that God said I'll actually take you out of the land and you'll be carted off into captivity which is, of course is eventually what happened and uh, and, and, and so now, now they do that and so in this exercise, what they're doing is they're getting thoroughly acquainted with the Word of God to the extent that they had it. Thus far, the, the Bible they had were what we know to be the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And what's happening is uh, Joshua at, is, is, is actually writing them out on, on tablets of stone, alright? the people are dividing into two halves and they're reading it to each other and then Joshua reads the whole lot to all the people so you can see the emphasis here it was the people being taught the word of God in its entirety it it was the people learning and knowing and understanding what God's word was and, um, it was the women and children as well. It wasn't just a question of the men folk. It wasn't just a question of the adults. It was the children as well. And of course, under the law, remember, parents were responsible for teaching their children to take them out in the fields and you know and stuff like that. And when children asked about the tabernacle, like the tent and you know, the the parents were to tell them all about it, so that the parents were instructing their children in the Word of God. But here, the whole nation is being comprehensively instructed in the Word of God, uh, you know, to the extent the first five books of Moses that they actually had the Scriptures, and so therefore you can't, you know, there you, you have the, the emphasis on on the importance of the Word of God, and remember that Joshua had been told by the Lord to meditate on the law of God day and night, you know, because obviously you can only lead God's people in the way that God has said he wants them led and how do you find that out? from the Bible so then if 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 we're to summarise this whole episode with AI, the defeat and then the eventual victory I summarise it like this don't sin that's God's word I write this to you little children that you may not sin that's what John says in his first epistle But when you do sin because John went on to say if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves. When you do sin repent honestly and let the law work it out. And if we do that then he won't only forgive the sin but he'll unmess the mess. And he'll put right any defeats that we've experienced at satan's hands because of it and he won't hold it against us it is wiped out justified never seen and uh... i think i actually started this study without saying right so i'll end it without saying i'll leave it there oh hang on i've just said i'll leave it there (laughs) Come back next time. Good night.